Greetings from NJIT. I'm Mike Small, an Executive Director of the Alumni Relations Office, and welcome to our latest Highlander Chat. So I'm very pleased to welcome today Martin Hammer, class of 1980. He is the Principal Architect of Martin Hammer Architects. He is also the Co-Director of Building Without Borders. Martin, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So Martin, first question. How are you? How's the family? Uh, yeah, it's an important question for everyone these days. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm fine. Um, my wife is fine. Uh, both of us, fortunately, are able to uh, work from home generally. Uh, and um, But I, I will say that my wife, well, she's also fortunate. She was in India in the month of end of February, March, and into March, and um, <clears throat> needed to be uh, needed to return home on a um, U.S. Uh, State Department evacuation flight, flight uh, uh, April 6th. So she was fortunate to um, come back safely, but it was a bit of a bit of an experience. Well, Martin, I'm relieved to hear she made it home well. I can imagine how harrowing that is probably for both of you. Uh, um, but I'm pleased you're back, you're home, you're healthy. That's great to hear. And of course, you're out in California, the sunny state. So <laughs> that's always a good thing, too. Yes. So, so, Martin, speaking of you living in California, one of the things that I found most interesting right at the outset, you graduated from NJIT in 1980. And within the space of a couple of years, you said, I'm going to move out to California. I'm going to found my own architecture firm. I'm going to go full into this field that's of interest to you. Uh, those are two pretty significant life events, one personal, one professional. And I'm sure there was a lot of blend over between both. What, uh, what did you learn from taking that leap and that experience? Uh, well, before I say what I learned, I'll say a bit about what precipitated that decision. Um, so I, uh, up through my graduation from NJIT, I lived in New Jersey. That was my life experience. I grew up in Livingston, a suburb of Newark, and um, did my college studies at NJIT. And uh, in fact, I was even about to take a job with a, a small architecture firm in my hometown. And um, a, a light bulb went off and I said, well, before you do that, why don't you go see something else? Um, and I had um, I had traveled after graduating from NJIT across the country. And in those travels, there were certain parts of the country that appealed to me. And, and one of them was Northern California. Um, I really loved the area, the beauty of the area, the culture, the people. Um, and, and I knew that California was uh, more open to change and innovation than other parts of the country uh, and, and is a, actually a leader uh, in innovation and change in the world to this day, it continues to be. So I, and, I, and coming out of NJIT, I saw there were lots of um, things that I wanted to do to make, make positive change. And that felt, felt like a, a better environment for me. So I, um, I did move. Um, and I returned to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. I was fortunate to find a job in Berkeley with a small architecture firm and enjoyed that, learned quite a bit. Um, but I was uh, still uh, struggling a bit with wh whether the East Coast or West Coast was the better place for me, where did I belong? So I moved back to, the, to New Jersey and I found a job with a a professor that I had in NJIT, David Busing, who had a practice in White Plains, New York, and I worked there for about a year. Had a great experience there too. He was a great professor, a, a very good architect. And, um, but it, but that, that experience going back and forth, it made me realize that I, <clears throat> that I felt more comfortable in Northern California and, um, and that was just a better place for me, both personally and professionally. So I, so I moved back um, and was about to take a job with a, a small, another small firm in Berkeley. And be, just before then, a friend asked if I would design and build a small addition for them. And I said, why not? Um, especially the build part, because uh, 
it was something I wanted to do ever since my uh, my time in, at NJIT was to get some hands-on building experience. It's it's one thing that I think is greatly lacking and often completely absent from architectural educations is the hands-on experience. <clears throat> um, there, there's a tradition historically um, centuries back where architects were actually called master builders. They, they, their design experience um, was highly informed by, by their building experience and they were builders first. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that uh, is very valuable for any, any building designer is to know how things are built, how they go together, to, to do what works, what doesn't, um, what's costly, what's not, uh, and to develop an appreciation for the people who ultimately will build your buildings, the, the contractors, the electricians, the carpenters, all the people that do the hands-on work to make, uh, make your designs real. So that was very valuable experience for me. Um, and, uh, and that small project led to a second. A neighbor asked me to do something similar, so I did. Uh, that one led to another project and another and another. And here I am some 37 years later. And uh, that, that succession of, of pro uh, projects never stopped, um, mostly uh, by referral and um, or entirely, really. And um, so... Uh, yeah, I've, I've been I've been very very fortunate, and and also just to say, you know, in terms of the what what all of that really points to in terms of lessons learned is to follow your head and your heart. Um, I, I feel like that's what that's what I did. Um, there's a little bit of risk involved, but you know, if things don't work out. There's other, other things you can do, and um, and and if you can ultimately do what what you are passionate about, what you really believe in. Um, it's, it's, and not, it's, it, it's not even work really. It's, it's, it's your, it's your life's work. It's more than just a job. It's your life's work. And, and, um, so that's, that my big, that's the biggest lesson learned. I've got to say, I feel like that's a motto for NJIT students right now starting to jump into their fields, you know, head, heart, uh, do what you love and you'll never work that day in your life. Uh, what I find interesting as well about what you did, when, when you pull this all together, you go out to California, you're finding a place that clearly, you know, just suits what you're looking for professionally, personally. There was a lot of flexibility there. There was a lot of focus on sustainability in that area as well, which right early on, uh, I think before it was on the national stage, certainly before we've taken it as seriously as we've taken it now. And the fact that you had hands-on for how to make that happen uh, it seems to me like you've got a bird's eye view right now of how sustainability takes place in the building and architectural field. Have you seen any trends of change from when you got started with your own hands on these projects and grew larger and larger to today? Well, in, environmental issues were always important to me, uh, even before I got the NJIT and there, and there was the very strong environmental movement coming out of the 60s and into the 70s and um <clears throat> so and and definitely yeah california has been at the forefront of the environmental movement since its inception uh so that was another thing that appealed to me about especially northern california um and in when i was at njit uh solar in, in architecture and even in the engineering realm uh, solar was was really um, hot topic. Uh, a lot of people had interest in solar design, passive and active solar systems, uh, and and so and that continues to be important to me uh, to this day. Uh, in fact, I we have um, solar hot water system on our on the roof of our home, uh, and. Um, so, but, but things have changed definitely since the 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 real beginnings. I'll, I'll say the real you know beginnings of the environmental movement in the '60s and '70s. Um, one well, one thing that wasn't talked about at that time, or little or even no awareness of, is climate change. <clears throat> so, 
Um, where, whereas in those days and you know into the following decades, we talked a lot about energy efficiency in buildings and even embodied energy in building materials and systems. Um, there, there was no talk of carbon footprints. You know how what the carbon cost, so to speak, of of buildings is. Uh, whereas today, it's a, you know, you could see, you could say it's the most important question in terms of uh, the habitability of our planet. Uh, so over the last ten years, especially, there's been a lot of discussion and and movement towards reducing the carbon embodied carbon and carbon footprint of of buildings. Um, also, uh, build, building materials and technology has changed over the years. So uh, we did talk about energy efficiency at the time that I studied at NJT, and but but the the ability to make efficient buildings was nothing compared to what it is today in terms of building envelope technology or. Uh, building for energy management systems that are very sophisticated, uh, efficiency of lighting, another example that's come, that's made great strides over the last couple decades. So, so technological improvements and focus, right? I mentioned uh, uh, carbon being concerned about carbon issues, um, which actually the carbon issue does play into some of the other, some of the specific building technologies uh, that I became involved with uh, since the mid nineties. Um, more uh, what are sometimes called natural building systems and uh, build, building systems that sequester carbon uh, instead of putting more carbon into the atmosphere. And I could talk a little bit about that if, if you like. <laughs> Well, I definitely want to come back around to that. Uh, one of my guests in a previous Highlander chat uh, was the former president of Exxon Middle East, and he has formed this company that does non-toxic oil shell reclamation. We got a really interesting conversation about the sort of sustainability that goes into something like that. But really, a huge part of that is uh, carbon neutral, you know, and trying to reclaim that carbon and, and put it away and, and so on and so forth. So I'd love to hear more about that. I will tell you one of the things that I, I also want to sort of lead as a throughput here, though, is you mentioned different types of building materials and, and, and more sustainability and not just building materials, but the styles of buildings. And something that I was so fascinated by in your career is, is this sort of uh, bail uh, building material, where not only are you using certain types of materials, you actually set up some of the standards for bail building uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. You know, where did you come up with the concept? How does that sort of lead in with the rest of of what you do? Yeah, well, you, so you're referring to what's generally known as straw bale construction, where uh, baled straw, like the type you we've all seen in in um, <clears throat> in the field of of farmers who grow wheat or other other grain crops um, are used as uh, big fuzzy building blocks uh, to make walls that are usually plastered on both sides. And it's a, a very simple uh, low-tech system that was invented in the late 1800s in the state of Nebraska, <clears throat> where there was a history of sod building using um, sod and stacking stacking it to make wall systems because there was so little to build with on, on the plain, so little timber and, um, and, and, and also very cold winters. So it came out of that tradition, um, but it was the, the invention of the baling machine uh, in the late 1800s where there was first um, rectangular blocks of straw that could be used. And it was just, uh, you know, um, necessity, the mother of invention, there, there were these blocks of straw, uh, cold winters, and the people in that region started stacking them and make, turning them into walls and building houses out of them. And it made a lot of sense there, or then and, at, and in that place. Um, the, the straw, it, it was a, it's basically an agricultural waste product or a byproduct 
and um, it's highly insulating, which was a great advantage the cold Nebraska winters. And um, very inexpensive, it was local. And so that, that method of building was practiced for a few decades regionally, uh, but then was um, essentially abandoned it, it, for then uh, coming out of the out of the World War II era. Uh, it just wasn't done at all. It wasn't practiced at all. Um, there, there was a lot no re re reason really because um, there was a lot more transportation and access to building materials all over the country, uh, and. Um, I, well, until it, the, that method of discussion or d of construction was uh, rediscovered in the 70s, really the 80s, when people started to notice it again and experiment with it again, and and um, and so it, it 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 caught hold, especially in the American Southwest. Uh, but then from there, as people experimented with it, and and um, it just made it work again uh, in in a in a different time uh, where uh, energy efficiency was important and trying and trying to use materials that were not <clears throat> toxic and had low embodied energy and uh, were local. Um, so it it, it, cap it captured people's imaginations too, which was for me the most in a way the most important thing about it. I. Uh, the first straw bale building I designed was in 1994. A contractor friend found out about this this rediscovered system of building, and asked me to design a building with him. We did. We built it. Uh, really, a large building, a 3,000 square foot building. So we, uh, I guess, in a way in, similar to the way that I just jumped into California, I jumped into straw bale building of you know full force, and and. And for, and that was a transformational project for me because it caused me to question why we build with the materials we do, and and is it a matter of just convention or it it really opened up a whole palette of uh, building materials that I hadn't previously considered, um, and and to really ask critical questions about why we build the way we do. <clears throat> so, uh, so, so from that, I, I designed other, designed and built other uh, straw bale buildings, um, taught a class, uh, community college, local community college, um, and started to get into other associated low-tech building technology, some of them that have been around for centuries. So. And earthen building, rammed earth. Um, there, there's a whole um, uh, spectrum of of building systems using earth and straw, where 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 on one end of the spectrum are straw bale buildings that are almost entirely straw, uh, and the other end of the spectrum is um, rammed earth, which is entirely earth, and then in between there's Variations. There's adobe, which many people are aware of, especially the buildings in the American Southwest. Um, beautiful um, and long-lasting buildings. Um, there's straw clay. There's another material called cob or monolithic adobe, which has been used, utilized for centuries, especially in um, parts of Europe and other parts of the world. And and even in terms of durability, these buildings, when they're built right, designed and built right, they can last indefinitely. There, there are straw bale buildings which are over a hundred years old, still being used. Um, so they're they're very low embodied energy. They're very energy efficient. <clears throat> they're not right for every situation, but um, you know they're not generally such an urban uh, material or system to use. But um, but suburban even and and even with the straw bale buildings. With some uh, some ingenuity, there are there's a seven-story straw bale building in France, for example, a, a residential structure. It's it the the straw is not structural; it's only infill and used for insulation. But uh, and there are other prefab systems that are being developed 
in other parts in many parts of the world. Um, uh, and and to give a kind of paint the broad picture of of its applicability, uh, there are now straw bale buildings in every state in the United States. Uh, there are thousands in California. There are four, at least four, in New Jersey. Uh, and I've uh, visited them. And um, um, in some states don't have so many, but uh, some have a lot, like I said, in California. And then there are buildings using this method of construction or some variation of it in over 50 countries throughout the world. Uh, so, um, so it does, it, in terms, I mentioned that it was a transformational project for me or my, in my career because not only did it get me into these other, other building systems, uh, these natural building systems that um, have the advantages I described, um, it, it, you know, well, it by, as a matter of course, caused me to get into building code development and building standards. <clears throat> um, at, at the time that I designed that building, there was uh, a, a straw bale standard or guide, there were guidelines in the state of California, but they were not very well, they were a little bit out of date because they came, they, they were written based on, in, um, uh, well, earlier understanding on the building system, we learned more as we as we went. So I, I became involved with, with revising those guidelines in the state of California. And then from there, uh, started a, 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 um, a new straw bale building code for the state of California. And that um, led to an effort with the national model codes that are used in the United States, the what are called the I codes or the international codes. And um, so, with the, I, I led efforts uh, uh, to write and have uh, approved four appendices in the international residential code. Uh, one on straw bale construction, one on light straw clay construction, one on cob or monolithic adobe construction, and one on tiny houses, which is another important um, subject in the in the building industry over, especially over the last five or ten years, is building small. So uh, that, and it's that work that I'm 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 particularly proud of that work because it. It has a lot of effect. It has it has a lot of uh, impact on on the way on what on the resources that are available for people to build in more sustainable ways. Building small, building building with systems that uh, have have very little environmental impact uh, and are energy efficient and are not toxic. Uh, so so as as my career has uh, developed, I've, I've become uh, especially interested in choosing work that has the greatest impact. Um, so including the co-development work, I, I still do uh, local work for clients. Uh, I've had great clients over the years and enjoy that work. But that, but in terms of impact, it has relatively little impact. I'm, I'm, I'm helping uh, a homeowner or, or a particular client, and, and you know, so that that's great. Um, and and I try to practice what I preach, and and even in those designs, do things that uh, are environmentally more as sustainable as possible. And a lot of work with passive solar design and, and make good decisions with materials choices. But definitely the building codes and standards work uh, has more of an impact. Uh, and the, the other place that has had more impact and a decision that I've made um, is doing international work with sustainable rebuilding in um, mostly post-earthquake. And I think you wanted to <laughs> ask me a little bit about that. Yep, that's right. Uh, so, you know, it's funny. I'm going to have to have you back on for another Highlander chat. Uh, I already wanted to recover the uh, uh, 
the carbon uh, reclamation, the sequestration and how you use that, uh, whether that's a building material. I can't believe there's a seven story tall bell structure in France. That's fascinating to me. I'd love to know where the bell structures are in New Jersey, because that would be so great uh, for us to go and visit and talk a little bit more about. And also uh, some of the other, you know, as you said, the passive solar and so on. These are all things that I find interesting. I think our alums find interesting as well. I'd love to have you back on uh, if you're interested in a couple of weeks or months and, and go more in depth about this um, because this could easily take us all day. <laughs> I don't want to do a disservice, however, to what we, what you just mentioned, which is also, you know, this is one part of your life. Clearly, you know, it was the professional work. It's the knowledge that you've brought. It's the regulation or the, the rules and codes that you come up with, but you're also the co-director of Builders Without Borders. And so much of, of what I've seen you do beyond that personal and professional is also you going out to places that have been stricken by earthquakes, uh, places that, you know, need that sort of uh, uh, reclamation help and that sort of sustainability help. And it's been amazing to me to see where you've gone. And I think largely at your own uh, beck and call, you, you've gone out to do this proactively to help people. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And, um, you know, there, there's some obvious examples like the work you did in Haiti, uh, but there's other places you visited. I'd love to just hear what your experience was like, what drove you to do that, and maybe how other people could get involved as well. Um, my... My first trip to Haiti, well, after, after the, I had interest in Haiti uh, before the earthquake, the 2010 earthquake. I was just, it just, it was a very fascinating place to me and it is to others. It has a very troubled history really. And, um, <clears throat> and there's a lot of poverty, um, there's a lot of political um, instability and, so it, it had interest for me before the earthquake, but when the earthquake uh, hit, it it was on everyone's uh, mind. I think throughout the world, it was such a devastating earthquake that uh, killed uh, the reported death tolls over two hundred thousand, which is just a staggering number, and over a thousand, I mean over a million um, homes destroyed. So. It, it was so uh, extreme that it it was on many people's mind, and and it in, increased my already um, high interest in in the country and the people. Uh, I soon after it occurred, I had the opportunity to uh, go as part of a reconnaissance team with the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute, which is headquartered in Oakland, California. And um, so I, I took that opportunity and, and went and, and, and this was seven, seven weeks after the earthquake, <clears throat> was able to um, document some of the damage or interested in, in why buildings failed. And, uh, and so I did my part in that. Um, and then soon after that, I had a second opportunity to go uh, with uh, the a team from the small team from the World Monuments Fund to do historic preservation work, and I I did that as as well, documenting a particular type of building that uh, had had uh, special architectural uh, importance to the to the culture and. Um, and and that was that was another great experience, um, really immersing myself in these two two visits in the culture and the place and in the devastation. I mean, it was uh, Port-au-Prince, especially in and around the city, uh, was just um, it's not really it's hard to describe. It was um, e even people who had seen photos of it when they when they arrived in person were just uh, staggered by the, the uh, amount of damage. And, um, but, in, in, but during the course of those visits, and even from the beginning, what I was most interested in was sustainable rebuilding. There's rebuilding after every natural disaster, and it's not always done well. It's uh, done sometimes uh, in ways that aren't safe, 
uh, in ways that aren't particularly sustainable. And there's there's a lot of um, help needed needed help from outside. And sometimes that well-intentioned help uh, leads to sometimes failures, uh, and um, and it's it's and generally it's not optimal. Um, so, in in terms of sustainability, but not only there there are cultural issues and um, and mis misplaced efforts, and there's all there's all kind there there are some successes too. There there are things that are done really well, and and you and you try to see. Um, look at the um, the efforts that were done well and succeeded, and 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 follow their lead and learn from them. Um, but anyway, I was especially interested in in sustainability, but also culture uh, cu uh, rebuilding that's culturally appropriate. Uh, so, I that that was always that was always the most or on the at the forefront of my mind after the earthquake. And so after the, the other two efforts, the reconnaissance and the, the uh, historic preservation work, I put a small team together to build a straw bale building in, in Haiti. It was, I knew there was a lot of rice straw in, in the country. I knew of the poverty. I was trying to design and, and, um, and build an example of a building that 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 technologically was something that they hadn't seen, they weren't aware of, although they had the materials to do it. Um, but but that was also in keeping with the culture in terms of its architectural design. So we built a small building um, in in Haitian Creole, uh, uh, the Tikai Pai, which uh, translates as small straw house. There's a there's a tradition of the tikai, the small house, rural house in in Haiti, beautiful buildings. Uh, but this was this this was essentially using that architectural design, but with a new building system. Um, so we did we did build a building there. That was my that was my um, uh, first um, rebuilding effort there, and I, and I did some other. Um, contract design work for other organizations um, and, and some building projects. Um, but so anyway, that it, it, it was during the course of my work in Haiti that I became co-director of builders. I, up, up until that time, I had known the, the founder of the organization for many years. And, and so we partnered with them and then became Co-director because I was spending so much time there doing doing work for the for the organization for and with the organization, um, and and that though led to um, there were there was some success there, but it's a Haiti's a challenging place to work in. I um, I love the place, the people, the culture. Um, it's but it's very hard. It's 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 hard it's hard enough for an American coming in to visit, um, but of course it's so much harder for the common Haitian people. Um, there, there's just there's so much uh, poverty and um, and distress in the in the in the country. Mo mostly, I think it's around the cities. the the um, The rural areas are are not quite so. Um, challenged in a way challenged in different ways but but just to, to as an example of the difficulties uh af after the earthquake in, in addition to this tremendous devastation that the that the earthquake brought to haiti uh by october of that year 2010 the earthquake occurred in january 2010 by october it was discovered that cholera had been brought into the country uh, it hadn't existed in on the uh, in Haiti or on the on that island on the uh, shares with Dominican Republic, uh, to, uh, up until that time there was no cholera. There were other there was malaria and deng dengue fever and other tropical diseases, but not cholera. And um, and it was brought in from outside inadvertently, um, but there was other. Uh, communicable disease, uh, a health crisis in a country that 
certainly didn't need another crisis. Um, uh, so that was in October of 2010. E even though um, I had experience in Haiti and elsewhere, knowing how to what to eat and not eat and water safety and hygiene, et cetera. I knew all the right things to do, but mistakes can still happen. And as it turned out, I contracted cholera in in January of 2011. Well, not a pleasant experience, <laughs> um, very difficult experience, uh, miserable 36 hours, but, <clears throat> but I had, I was fortunate in my position to have access to very uh, quick medical care uh, and treatment. Uh, it's really a, it's a simple, relatively simple thing to to treat with antibiotic and um, and with and and had access to a cholera clinic. I was the first non-Haitian in this cholera clinic, and um, was able to recover quickly. Um, but the but it's just it, it's important to understand that or have what what that did what that experience showed me was how uh it's it's one thing to be fortunate like i was to have access to the treatment but most haitians don't um i and i was uh as an american and in, in very good health uh many haitians aren't they they struggle with nutritional issues and other health issues, so they have compromised health to begin with, and then you and then so the combination of um, contracting that that disease with compromised health and without access to proper treatment is literally deadly, or can be certainly. So um, over nine thousand people have died uh, since two thousand ten when cholera was first uh, brought into Haiti. So it it um, it it well it just highlighted for me that um, that disparity between uh, people who who have access to what's needed and people who don't. So I think understanding the seriousness of of what happened in Haiti and some of these other locations. I also have to stop and pause and, you know, just give you an enormous amount of credit, uh, not just for doing what you're doing and pursuing the sort of building that you pursue for the purposes that you do, but for having endured a pretty serious hardship while you do it. And it certainly seems to me that in this time, people can really understand the, the sort of impact that must have. Um, if other people wanted to help out, and this is this is really just out of out of my curiosity, I know I get asked by alumni all the time. So so they would go, you know, to your website or they would contact you. They'd say, hey, you know, I I want to try and do this. Um, how how would they pursue that specifically? Um, well, the simple thing to do is to go to the website, uh, Builders Without Borders, all written together dot org, and um, there sometimes are ways to participate. Uh, it's a very small organization, really, uh, that up, that puts teams together to build sustainable shelter in places of need. Um, and so, it's un unlike it's it's um, it, it, well, it's cousin. I'll call it in the in the medical world, Doctors Without Borders, which I believe was the first Without Borders organization. It's an, that, that organization is enormous and has worldwide presence uh, in so many countries. Uh, Builders Without Borders is a very small organization. It's, um, it has very little, uh, there's no one who's, uh, who's a full-time paid person. We, and it's a lot of volunteer work. Um, so we, we generally put teams of people together to do pro certain projects or, or sometimes people come to Builders Without Borders with a project they want to do and we, we find a way to make it work. Um, so there are sometimes places and times to where volunteers are needed on a particular project or for a particular task. Um, and also funding support, we can always use that. It helps us do, uh, do the work we do. But, but going to the website, would be the 
the simplest way to uh, at least, you know, inquire. Well, I have to say, you know, just the mention of cholera uh, is sort of an incredible thing in this day and age uh, that that this happens, that it spreads. And I think you had mentioned to me even before we started doing the recording that cholera had basically been knocked out of Haiti, right? I mean, it really didn't exist there before. Well, I don't, I'm not sure that it ever existed there. I don't think it, uh, it just had never been brought in. And um, it, 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 it has it had enough problems, <laughs> enough yeah, challenges right. to overcome without cholera. So, um, and, and um, yeah, but, but, you know, I, I also wanted to, maybe I chronologically um, didn't get this quite right, but I, before I went to Haiti uh, in 2006 and 2007, I was invited to go to Pakistan after the Kashmir earthquake there that occurred at the end of 2005. And, and that I was invited to go with a, uh, a woman engineer who's also from California to also uh, introduce straw bale building to northern Pakistan, and um, and it made a lot of sense for that region. Uh, so and I and I, it was it was also a fascinating. Pakistan is also a fascinating place. Um, uh, so so that was that was my the first time I I did international work, but it was really but it was it was straw bale building that that. Um, a, a sense, in a sense, allowed me to go or caused me to go, uh, and then, and that that led, uh, it, and that was a fascinating experience in a completely different way, um, with the culture, and um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just there, every place is different, and uh, every culture is different. The people, um, but that that was really satisfying work that we did, and and. So I helped found an organization there called Pakistan Straw Bale and Appropriate Building um, that went on to build over 40 uh, straw bale buildings for the, in the community. Um, wow. And we had hoped it would really expect it would go, it would be 400 or 4,000 or more. Um, and we're still trying to understand why it didn't, hasn't taken off as as much as we hoped it would or expected, because the the buildings are <clears throat> they're about half as costly as concrete block buildings, which is the that's the traditional rebuilding method. Uh, they in, they insulate very well. They're they're uh, they're non toxic. They they can be built very pretty very easily with or they can be built with easily learned skills. Um, and and especially the fact that they're insulating, which the, in northern Pakistan that has severe winters, they instead of living in insulated well insulated buildings, they live in very poorly insulated buildings and and build fires <laughs> to keep themselves warm. So it's um, and there's a lot of indoor air pollution. Um, so there are lot, lots of reasons. It has lots of advantages, but we're still trying to understand and and find ways to make it more appealing and um, and have and, and be utilized more more often but but it was so it was so it was the work in in Pakistan and then and then the work in, in Haiti and then the the third um, in sequence is after the 2015 earthquakes uh, in Nepal um, outside of uh, Kathmandu that there was I, I was looking at doing other work, additional work in in Haiti, and um, but but then that that uh, the, the Nepal earthquakes occurred, two two of them one month apart, and um, and that's so that I decided to answer that call and uh, and and and, and, and um, introduce straw bale building again and other we other methods of building, but all sustain all with them. Um, with the goal of introducing sustainable rebuilding. It's all about sustainability and cost is a huge part of that. Um, so it's really, it's environmentally sustainable, but also economically sustainable and 
culturally sustainable. It has to be sustainable across the board in, in every way. It's not only about environmental sustainability. Well, it almost sounds like those things go hand in hand. So if you're focused on one, then it starts to bring in the others, provided that you have a sensitivity to that at the start. And I've got to imagine that it's easy to focus and zero in on one piece and kind of forget about the other stuff. But it's equally, it's all equally important to the people you're actually helping, I imagine, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it's important to understand the whole picture and be sustainable in, in all, in all ways. Uh, if you're sustainable only environmentally, but the building costs five times as much as a, a normal house, no one's going to build it. No one's going to use it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Straw uh, bill or not. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, and, and also, you know, another, a different culture, a different place. Uh, but but, but um, and, and we had a we had a, a proposal with the government, uh, Nepal government, um, which is another issue is to in the same way of doing that. I've been doing this work with uh, the national model building codes to have greater impact. We're trying to uh, have. Have the uh, have the approval of governmental authorities uh, for these building types to. Um, to allow uh, to give them more um, chance, greater chance of being utilized and being trusted. So I'm gonna I'm gonna deviate just for a minute or two. I'm gonna kind of bring it back to way back in college, and um, and we discussed some of these questions in advance. This is one of my favorite ones to to ask. So you, when we were first corresponding about this, you mentioned uh, two people who were really formative on your life and, I, and in your college career. And I had read a little bit about this in advance as well. Uh, they're two of my favorite people, Tony Schumann and Mel Simon, who are probably names recognizable to almost anybody who's going to watch this. Uh, what did they do? Have you stayed in touch? And, uh, you know, if you could, if they were sitting in front of you right now, what would you say to them? Uh, first, I would say thank you. <laughs> they And I have said that to them many times. I mean, they... They were influential in in this in a very specific way. Well, and in other ways as well. Many many of my professors at NJIT, I was very fortunate. I had great professors, and they all influenced me in positive ways. Um, but and then, but relative to this international work that I've done, they it was all it was in the back of my mind ever since my days at NJIT. Uh, these messages that. Uh, Tony Schumann and Mal Simon um, instilled in me uh, that I just I I wouldn't have thought of without without them without their presence uh, without knowing what they had done. Uh, uh, Tony Schumann had I remember hearing about his studies and work in Africa, uh, working with. Uh, just understanding and appreciating the the culture uh, and the and the ways of building in in a, in developing countries in Africa, um, and and up up until that time, I don't I don't know that well. When we studied architecture, it was about architecture in the U.S. or in Europe, or um, it. It was very uh, Western, much more of a Western uh, or a study of Western art, what I'll call Western architecture. Um, and then, so here's someone, a professor who's now talking about indigenous building methods and communities in Africa. And I just hadn't really thought of that. Is that something architects would even consider or value or um, or look into or or become involved with? So that that just made an impression on me, and um, and the other which I carried through for decades, um, and and then the other, as you mentioned, Mal Simon, who uh, who I who was my soccer coach. I, I I was on the NJIT soccer team, my times my years at NJIT, and and Mal was the um, was the head coach, uh, also the athletic director, but. I, I love Mal as a as a uh, as our soccer coach. Really knew the game. We had great 
players, great teams there. Um, and in the course of my um, interactions with Mal, I, I learned that he was uh, had volunteered in the Peace Corps uh, earlier in his life. Uh, and and it actually lived there, lived, I forget which country it was now or countries, but he he it was not only Mal doing this, but he was he was there uh, working for Peace Corps with his family, with his wife, and I think he had at least one child at the time. Um, so that that just made a uh, another impression on me. It was like, okay, here's here's my soccer coach who in in previous years had done this great work in the Peace Corps. And uh, so I, I, I carried that along with me as well for many years. Um, uh, and I, so I think both those things together um, just helped me think that, well, I could do that too. I could do something like that. I, I don't have to simply um, take the conven more conventional path and, and, and do my architectural, have an architectural career that is based only in the United States or or works only with more conventional ways of building. Um, so so yeah, but both of those, both Tony Schumann and Mal Simon were of great influence uh, on in my life, in my both personal and professional life. Well, Martin, that's uh, that's wonderful to hear, and I think it's inspirational to me, and I know it's inspirational to a lot of alumni out there, and particularly, I might say, for this new graduating class of students who are going into a world that, frankly, none of us could have predicted, none of us might have expected, uh, but I think they they have an opportunity to look at a story like yours and and seek to emulate the very best of what you've done, and I think you're paying it forward by virtue of what you've picked up throughout your life and certainly at NJIT. So thank you so much for joining us today, really. All right. Well, thank you, Michael, very much for having me. Martin, it was a pleasure. And I look forward to having you back soon. I'm not kidding about that uh, because, man, have you done some fascinating things that I think we should hear more about. All right. So thank thanks you. again. Thank and you. my best to you and your family. Likewise. So again, this has been the Highlander Chat with Martin Hammer, class of 1980, principal at Martin Hammer Architects and co-director of Builders Without Borders. I'm Mike Small, and I'm executive director of Alumni Relations. Very pleased uh, to have welcomed you here today. Please do stay tuned for future Highlander Chats as they come out. You can follow us online on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. We're also available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and a variety of other podcasting platforms. Finally, my best wishes to you and your family for a safe and healthy summer at this point, and go Highlanders. <laughs>